I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, if you would, this, uh, this morning. And we are going to read a very familiar parable to you. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Anybody ever heard of that before? Oh, yeah. Amen. We know about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's very familiar uh, to Christians and non-Christians alike. They know about this parable. And in fact, we all know what it means to be called or to call someone a good Samaritan. It's a compliment, basically saying somebody has kindness, mercy, or compassion. And so I want to look at this today, and the title of this is going to be The Most Misunderstood Parable. The Most Misunderstood Parable. And I will explain why I have titled that this message, and I have also read that before, and it makes sense why. Look there if you would, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. I'm going to start reading there. We're going to read the whole parable and the context in which it is written. How many of those contexts is important? Very important. Let's look there. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? He answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said, said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring in the oil and the wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was the neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? And he said, He that showeth mercy on him. Then Jesus said unto him, Go and do likewise. You may be seated here this morning. This is a very simple and popular parable, and uh, it really is something, uh, when, I, when it came to preaching this on a morning of a camp meeting service, I prayed and, and asked God for some direction for each one of these services, and uh, it's not because there's a lack of preaching, there's much that can be said and much that could be preached. And I spend some time in prayer saying, God, I want to speak the right thing, the needful thing, and I, and I take mind of what's been preached already in the camp meeting what's been accomplished, what's been done. And what I love about a camp meeting when God is moving, and even when I'm ministering with another minister, it's amazing. Some things you have on your own heart that you say, Lord, I know this needs to be preached and talked about that that minister will touch on, just like Brother Israel did last night. 
And I believe this morning it freed me up and I felt liberty in my soul to preach to you about this parable of the Good Samaritan. And I began thinking even yesterday as Sister Emily and her sisters were singing about wanting to reach out to the lost and want to care for the lost. And it was a wonderful testimony about them pioneering the church there in Elizabeth City and want to help others. I often think to myself when I hear or talk to a Christian that say that they are bored, I try to understand what are you talking about? How can you be bored? There's so much to do for the kingdom of God. Amen. As a matter of fact, if you were just to keep the two greatest commandments, to love God and love your neighbor, there's plenty right there to keep you busy all the way to eternity. But I want to focus on that here today, and we're going to get into it a little bit more because we often hear so much about God loving us and us loving God and how we should do that that sometimes we can try to separate that, not even saying intentionally, but we can separate that from loving your neighbor. Yes, we know that God loves us. Yes, we know we are to love Him. But let me ask you here this morning, how intimately and fervently are you loving your neighbor? Now, instantly, what happens sometimes, I've learned this in my years of ministry, when we get talking about loving your neighbor in church, you begin to look over in the pews beside, you in the room around you and say, ah, I love them. Everything is fine. But the question here tonight or this morning, what we need to answer is how do you define your neighbor? It's easy to love those that are on the pew beside you. Amen. It's easy to love those that who agree with you and look just like you and live just like you. But when it comes to this parable about the Good Samaritan, we've got to weed through all the things that we've read in the past and get down to the core of this. See, this is a very simple parable. It's very easy to understand. And we even get the punchline. Who is thy neighbor? Oh, that's simple. Our neighbor's like the good, a good neighbor is the Samaritan that got down and helped that man that was in need. But something I have noticed over the years, and I'm not saying this is completely evil or wrong, but if we're not careful with the parables, we can overtype the parables or oversymbolize the parables. I mean, I I went back and thinking and things I read over the years and even some of the things I've preached in the past. And I said, Lord, you can do an injustice to some of the parables if you overtype them. And let me give you an example because this is a wonderful example of somebody doing that. One of the early writers, one of the early church fathers by the name of Origen, listen to what he says about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I want you to show you right here how he overtypes this. He said, here is the interpretation of the story. The man that was beaten. He was like Adam. Jerusalem is paradise. Jericho is the world. The robbers are demonic forces. The priest is the law. The Levite is the prophets. The Samaritan is Christ. The wounds are disobedience. The animal is the Lord's body. The inn is the church. And the Samaritan's return is the second coming. Take it easy, Origen. All right, I'm not against saying, look, that the Good Samaritan is a wonderful example of Jesus Christ. And we can make that statement, but let's be careful that we do not overtypify these parables and miss the very simple message. What is the simple message? The simple message is personal evangelism. The simple message is this we are to love those who we have to love those that are in need. We've got to be careful. We do not miss the message. This is a misunderstood parable. Terrible. And even more, you're going to notice here in this, as we teach this this morning, 
Another thing that we often miss is that we often talk about the man that was robbed. We often talk about the Levite. We often talk about the priest. We often talk about the good Samaritan. And we never talk about this lawyer that came to Jesus who had a lost heart. We never put him in the scenario. But he's the very focus of the story. As a matter of fact, I want to tell you this and don't get mad at me. The good Samaritan in the parable is not even a real person. This is a parable. He's making a point. He's driving home something. Some people get so caught up about this good Samaritan, who he is. I'll tell you who he is. He's a figure in a parable of what Jesus told. That's who he is. But the main focus in this is the lawyer that came to Jesus who thought he was justified, who thought he was right, who thought he loved God, and who thought he could separate loving God and loving his neighbor. That's the point of the parable. Let's look at it. Look at the scene in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice this idea of this lawyer standing up. Now this is not like a civil lawyer as you know in some sort of criminal sense. This is a lawyer of the sense of scripture. He stands up against Christ. What is he doing? He is trying to tempt Christ. He is trying to trap Christ. This would happen many times in the ministry of Jesus as men would come to him and constantly they would have strategy after strategy. They would ask him hard questions but I love Jesus Christ and his ministry as he had that divine wisdom and was able to turn it on their head every single time you could never get Jesus Christ in a corner you can never get him to contradict himself he is the son of God and I like what he notice when he comes there this man comes to Jesus to tempt him by asking him a very important and simple question what shall I do to inherit eternal life what shall I do to God. What is the path to heaven? What is the path to a right relationship with God? How can I guarantee that I can be in God's presence forever? That's a good question. It's the right question. And I would even say it's asked to the right person. All right? But he didn't have the right spirit. Come on now. You can have the right question and ask the right person and have the wrong spirit. You cannot have a... There's some people that come around and sometimes they have more of an approach to just trying to get some information, but they don't really want the true information. You can ask the right question to the right person. Here it is. This is Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed. He's the one that... He's the very life giver. This man comes to him and asks a very simple question. What must I do? do to inherit eternal life the solution simple Jesus said unto him what's written in the law what you read you're a lawyer you know the evidence and the witnesses there in the Old Testament what have you read? What is written in the law? How, how does it read to you? What does it say? Let's go back to the Word of God is what Jesus is saying. You have the Old Testament. You're a sharp scholar. You're a, you're a lawyer. You know what is said in the law. What is the right answer? And notice the man answers in verse 27. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart 
and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. This man knows the law. Amen. Verse 27 is very unique in the sense that it combines two, two scriptures from Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus. Two very familiar scriptures and they are the two scriptures that sum up the whole entire law. You know this. You've been taught this your whole life. As a matter of fact, in the book of Matthew chapter 22, Christ himself would say these are the two things that sum up the law of God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus did not reveal nothing new to them there. They had that in the law. The lawyer knew that. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you tell me, sir. You know the word. What does it say? I've got to love God, and I've got to love my neighbor. These are the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now you know this, but let me rehearse it in your ears. The first half of the Ten Commandments deal with loving God. And the second half deal with loving your neighbor. That's simple. Love God and love your neighbor. That's not new revelation to you here this morning. This sums up the whole law. It's easy to quote, but harder to live though. Right? Some of us struggle more with loving God than we do anything. You gotta love God with your whole entire being. It's that simple. Brothers and sisters, this is not complicated. You don't have to be a theologian to understand that. Do you love God this morning? With everything that is in you, all of your capacity, all of your efforts, all of your faculties, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, all of your mind. And if you do, then you also need to love your neighbor as yourself. Christ would say unto him, you answered right. This do, you're going to live. All right. He asked a question. Christ gives the answer. I mean, the man answers the question himself. Christ confirms that that's right. You've answered correctly. So basically this, you know the law. Love God, love your neighbor. Go do it. You would get a lot out of the service here today if you say, oh, love God, love my neighbor. Go do it. Go do it. It's that simple. That's what Christ is saying there. Now some people would say, whoa, whoa, where's the gospel here? Why didn't Jesus say, hey, why don't you believe on me? I'm the Messiah. Believe on me. Because there's another issue to be confronted here. This man does not view himself correctly. There's no good news unless this man at first accepts the bad news. And the bad news is this. This man don't really love God like he should. And he doesn't love his neighbor like he should. This man's not right with God. He's a lawyer. He's a a, a lawyer in the sense he's self-righteous. He depends on his own works. He does not look to God. Yes, he loves religion. He loves Pharisees. He loves the Sadducees in that sense. He loves Judaism. But he does not love God as he should. But notice what this man says. This should be the end of the conversation. If you really believe this is the Messiah, if you really believe this is the Christ, and you come to him and say, hey, where can I get eternal life? Love God. Love your neighbor. Go do it. Should be the end of the conversation right? Verse 29. But wishing to justify himself. He said to Jesus, and almost in a 
sarcastic tone. <laughs> Who's my neighbor? We're going to spend some time this morning defining who your neighbor is and what it means to love God and to love others. Who is my neighbor? I mean, notice this. Now, this really blows my mind in studying this passage. Notice how self-righteous this lawyer is. Notice how self-justifying he is. He doesn't even think about how he should love God better and love somebody, love humanity better. That would be the best thing to do. God, Christ, tell me how to love you better. How can I better love my neighbor? But no, no, he goes just like this. Who is my neighbor? It shows us he is oblivious to his condition. He is hostile to the mind of God. I mean, this man knows the Shema in the book of Deuteronomy. He knows you're to love God with all your heart. He knows you should love your neighbor but he does not understand his own condition so instead of Jesus just saying look this is your neighbor he's going to give him this parable Jesus answered and said in the story a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed leaving him a half dead It's a little comical here. As I was preparing for this, my mind went back to a sermon Brother Israel preached years ago at youth camp. I wasn't married. I I was a young man. And I remember he came to me before service. He said, hey, can you you be the guy that gets beat up? Sounds like an innocent youth camp illustration, right? I didn't know the two guys who were going to ask were going to take it so seriously. And I am not kidding you. I thought I had a concussion at the end of that thing. I was standing up there in front of Landmark Tabernacle. And I think it was Adam Chapel and another guy. And I said, I don't know if they thought they were going to be actors or something. And this was their big break. I mean, I'm standing there expecting somebody to come and gently lay hands on me. And, and somebody spears me from the back. And they took my shoes off my feet. And then I had to lay there and act like I was dead for like 45 minutes. I know how out of breath I get now. I couldn't do it now. They'd see me. I was laid on my stomach. They'd see me going up and down the whole entire time. And then he had another young man that was a donkey. And then I had to drape my corpse across that donkey. It was a very humiliating illustration. But he got the point across. So, I know what it is to be beat up like this guy, I guess, just a little bit. But notice, let me give you a very short version of what happened here. It's a very simple story. Jerusalem is 3,000 feet up and Jericho is said to be 1,000 feet below sea level. So like it says, when he's going down, and when when he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, it makes very much sense. You go along down that road, they say it's around 17 miles. They said it's got a lot of windings in the path. It's got a lot of precipices. It's got a lot of of huge huge canyons, a lot of dramatic drops and rocks and caves. It was a very good hideout for robbers. As a Matter of fact, I'm not too good at pronouncing this word here, but that highway literally features so many robbers, so many highwaymen, so many bandits. It was a favorite site of Arab Arab robbers, and it was called the Pass of Aduman. And it was known for this. It means the path of blood. There were so many people that would get robbed on this road. Read it. It's interesting. And they say if you go there here today, you can notice the different caverns and canyons where robbers would hide out. This is where that 
that man is. But notice how dramatic the story is. You see this man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho on this road. It's a very familiar road to to everybody in ancient times. He fell among these robbers. A group of highwaymen pounced on him. They didn't just rob him. They stripped him. They beat him, leaving him half dead. I mean, just out of nowhere, they hit him. They take advantage of him. And the word there for beat him is a constant verb. It's the idea that they kept on beating him and beating him and beating him. He was half dead. He was almost over for him. He was on the very edge of death and leaving this world. Pretty desperate situation, would you not say? Here's the very simple idea. This man needs help. Right? He cannot, this is important, he cannot help himself. (laughs) People sometimes say, Brother Derek, where do you draw the line? There's some people that can help themselves. This man can't even move. He can't lift himself out of that condition. And this would have, in this moment of this drama, it's almost like we look at this and think into our minds as it's set up. What's going to happen? Will anybody come to his aid? Who's his neighbor? Who's going to come to his rescue? And we're introduced to our first, our first superhero here. And I, and I put these terms together on purpose. This first man, I call him a pitiful priest. And by chance, there came down a certain priest that way. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. One writer said, by chance, nay, I say by providence. I mean, it's this simple. And I, and I know if you're like me, if I see somebody in a real pinch, I try to help them. And uh, here recently, I've noticed up there where we live, a lot of people end up start pushing their vehicles when they run out of gas or something breaks down. And about a month ago, I had three different occasions in a couple of weeks that I felt like I was being a good Samaritan because I'd see them pushing their cars and I'd go park and I'd go push the cars with them. I had one person, one lady was there with her daughter. I helped her get some gas. But the last guy I helped, I started pushing with them. And we kept on pushing. And we kept on pushing. And I said, where are you going? He said, it's a half a mile up the road. I said, I can't make it. <laughs> you don't realize how out of shape you are till you're pushing a car. He said, it's just around the corner. I said, man, I can't do it. And I looked over here. I said, he ain't going to make it either. <laughs> so the idea is this. This man couldn't help himself. But this pitiful priest comes by. It says, by chance, this priest just going down the road. Notice this, this priest knows the Old Testament. He knows the idea of charity and kindness. And maybe the others who are listening to Jesus tell this story, maybe this lawyer hears Jesus say, here comes a priest. And maybe the lawyer says, aha, there's a good Samaritan. No, he wouldn't have said Samaritan. There's a good guy, a good neighbor. But no, what does he do? He passes by. On the other side, let me give you a very simple question. This idea of passing by on the other side is the very word anti. He goes the opposite side of the road. He sees the guy. You know what? I'm not even going to get close over there. I, you know, he's one of those guys. You, you know how it is when you pull up to a stop sign and there's a homeless guy there with a sign and you just kind of look straight. Now, I'm not saying you should give all them guys some money. There's a system that's broken and someone can help themselves. Most of them can't. But you know how it is. I see this guy kind of glancing at the corner of his eye and kind of just goes this way and keeps going that way and acts like he doesn't even see him. I mean, this guy's got a legitimate need, right? 
Wouldn't it be wise to go over there and just see if he's even alive? Let me give you the equivalent. You pull up here, you're going down the road one day and you see a body laying on the side of the road. And you see the body laying there. I'm pretty sure everybody in this room would do something to try to aid the person. Number one, either stop and try to help. Or if you feel uncomfortable doing that, if you're a woman, you would call 911. You would call somebody. What kind of person would you be to see a body laying there and to go to the complete opposite side and act like you've never seen it? You have to have a depraved mind. Imagine being out in the waterfront and somebody's drowning. Help, I'm drowning. How many would say that's a legitimate need? Use some wisdom. not saying go out there and try to save them. You might drown yourself. But do something. Try to get somebody. Somebody help us. Let's go out there and help them. How depraved. Depraved indifference is even a legal term that you're so callous to a legitimate situation of life and death that you don't even, that's like actually a court term they use where you're so depraved and indifferent to a life or a person that you just go to the other side of the road and never pay attention to what's going on in that life. Depraved indifference. So let me ask you a question. How much love does this priest have if we're grading it by loving God and loving your neighbor? It's very simple. He has zero love. He would say, no, I love God. No, you don't. How do I know? Because you didn't love your neighbor. That's the litmus test. This is a legit need. A legit problem. The man cannot help himself. Notice this, the love of, he has no love for the stranger. He has no love for his neighbor. He shows no mercy. He shows no kindness. This is that kind of priest here in the Jewish system. He's self-justified and seems to be righteous to those around him, but he doesn't love God or his neighbors. Why? Because he doesn't obey the simple commandments. Another writer would comment on this. Another thing he didn't want to do is inconvenience his life because if it's a dead corpse, if he touches the dead corpse, it disqualifies him from worship that day. There's much that can be said. Let's look at the second character. We looked at the pitiful priest. Let's look at this lethargic Levite. And likewise, a Levite, when he was come to this place, came and looked on him. Goes over there. Then goes on the other side of the road. How much love does this Levite have? None. How do you know, Brother Derek? Because if he loved God, he would love his neighbor and he would definitely care for this gentleman here. This religious man, this man is connected to the priesthood. He's connected to religion to some intimate point. But the conclusion is this. We've just met a couple of people who do not have eternal life. What is evidence of that? Because they do not love their God. How do you know that? Because they have zero concern for their neighbor and this person who is in a horrible condition and they care not about about that person. So the question comes up after we look at the pitiful priest and the lethargic Levite. Will anyone do what's right? 
Will anyone do what's right? Will anyone show love? In verse 33, we look at this. It's almost like we're in shock. And this would have shocked the Jewish religious of the establishment of that day because here it is. This pitiful priest and this lethargic Levite couldn't do anything. But the Bible says there was a certain Samaritan. The Jews didn't like them guys. Right? And I'm not going to go through the history. I'm sure you've done that before of why they did not like the Samaritans. I'll tell you one of the greatest insults you could have gave another Jewish man is say, hey, you Samaritan. As a matter of fact, they looked at Jesus and said, he's a demon-possessed Samaritan. Shows you, how they, shows you how much they thought about Jesus Christ. It was something. They, did, they despised the Samaritans. What's the point, Brother Derek? It's very simple. It's this. Two men. I want you to get this. This is the point of the parable. Two men representing the Jewish establishment who thought they loved God and loved others at themselves have absolutely no love. It means that the, the, the system the Pharisees was spiritually bankrupt. These people tried justifying themselves and lying. They are deceived. Two men who were religious failed to meet the requirements for eternal life. They did not love their neighbor. They didn't love strangers. They didn't love their enemies. But this one man who is an outcast, this invention, this parable here, this person that Christ is talking about demonstrates at least for a moment a quality of loving your neighbor as yourself. This is the point. Judaism is bankrupt. But a good Samaritan comes along and Christ is going to use him as a point. We could go to John chapter 4. We find a good Samaritan. There's a woman at the well who's a Samaritan. And when she hears the message, and when she, when she believes on Christ, she goes to tell everybody about it. She loves her neighbor. The certain Samaritan journeyed. And he came where he was. Notice this. The pitiful priest saw him the other side of the road. The Levite Came and looked on them. Yeah. Here this Samaritan is coming, sees him. The Bible says not only sees him, but has compassion on him. Let me ask you here this morning, what kind of believer are you? Look, I'm not here trying to twist your arm to buying a thousand turkeys at Thanksgiving for people. I'm not telling you that. I'm not here trying to tell you that every case is a legitimate case. But I, hear, I am here to tell you there's real cases. And I, I'm here to tell you, I believe in these last days, there's going to be an increase of opportunities for the body of Christ to tie their heart to humanity in the sense of having compassion for them. Are you like the Levite? Are you like the priest? Or are you going to be like this good Samaritan who had compassion? But notice the extent of his compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring in the oil and the wine, set him in his own, his own beast, brought him to an end, took care of him. And on the morrow when he had departed, he took out two pence. He gave them to the host and said to him, take care of of him and whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again I will repay thee. Notice the extent of his compassion. Has anybody read anything about William Booth in the past? I read his biography one time and I didn't always agree on everything but you could not touch that man's compassion. Man, I got to weeping one time reading a short biography about him as he would go down to the difficult parts 
and districts of London. And one of the first Sundays, here he is, he brings in a group of people in the established church. And I'm talking about their, their, I mean, their liturgic churches, liturgical. He takes the, the old fisherman's, the old butcher fisherman's wife. She's got her leather apron on and fish scales stuck all to it. Goes in the church and takes them to the front pew. In his mind, it's simple. These folks need to hear about Jesus. Where do I want to get them? Where the Word of God is taught. What efforts do we put forth to bring them to the house of God? I know there's got to be limits and things you set. You can't meet every need, and every need may not be legitimate. But there ought to be an effort in every believer to say, if I know a legitimate need, I ought to be moved with enough compassion that I could be like a William Booth and march them down to the front of the church and say, sit on the front pew. Why? Because they need to hear about Jesus. The deacons of the church met him afterwards and said, William, don't do that again. we got a room in the back. You can put them in. But don't you bring them up here front again. That led him to starting his own mission and ministry. We look at men like that and we often admire their compassion. But we as the church of Jesus Christ are to model the sense that we want people to come. We want people to hear. We ought to have compassion. There are people that are in horrible conditions in this fallen world and some are looking for help. Some are looking for hope. I know we got to use discernment. I know we got to use wisdom. But never shut up your bowels of compassion. This place, this church, my church, your church ought to be open to the broken. We ought to want them to come and hear about the things of God. Verse 34, he came to the man. I believe he knelt down and analyzed, evaluated, assessed, diagnosed his condition, his need, gave careful attention to everything. He bandaged up his wounds. Remember this man, this man that had been robbed, his clothes had been taken from him. Some commentators believe it was very common even for maybe the good Samaritan to use some of his own garments and rip them into strips there and begin to bind up his wounds. He used the oil and the wine which was common for people to travel with for preparation of their meals. And he used this, he poured this upon them. This, this word poured is a rich word. He was and stingy. He lavished this man with the oil and the wine. He wanted them to be held. He put him on the back of his own beast, his donkey. This guy cannot walk. So he picks up this man and he places him on his own animal. The term here, this idea of a beast is a donkey is what most believe. This man's willing to walk and let this man ride. He cannot help himself. Brings him to an end and we're not talking about the holiday end. These inns were rough. It's not like you would think of an average hotel. This was a rough, tough roadside lodging, brutally sparse. You, don't want, you only want to be there in the case of an emergency or if you've gotten some sort of danger. But this man not only took him to the inn, he took him to the inn. I believe he goes up to the room. I believe he lays him down the rest. I believe he stays at his bedside all night. Brother Derek, how do you know he stayed all night? Because the next verse says, and on the morrow, he stayed all night to the next day. He made sure this man was stabilized. A picture, the good Samaritan wiping his wounds, checking his brow of his forehead cleansing him all night and the next day 
when he's got to go, he goes down to the reception desk, if you would. Takes out two pence or two denarii. It's a day's wages. Says, look, let him stay here as long as he needs to. I want him to get on his feet. If it takes more, when I come back, I'll repay you. Now, I found this interesting in John MacArthur's commentary on the subject. They found an actual signboard from an inn in the city of the Roman Empire. And a nightly cost was one thirty-second of a denarius. And one thirty-second of a denarius would mean that the man could stay for two denarii. If you do the math, he could stay for up to two months. It shows you the lavish love the good Samaritan had for this man. Again, this is a parable. Jesus Christ is introducing these figures to us. They're not necessarily real people, but he's painting the extreme of what somebody needs to go to some extent this man goes to to lavish this man with love, with care, and with compassion. That's the point point of the parable. It's lavish. It's ultimate attention. It's ultimate effort. You check on him. You check him out. You tear down your own clothes. You bind up his wounds. You pour in the oil. You put him on your animal. You take him to the end. You provide for them for two months. You stay overnight. This is loving a man that has a legitimate need. It's lavish love. Jesus tells this parable, right? And then he asked the lawyer, let's get back into real time. He's talking to this lawyer. Let's rehearse. Get this in your mind. Jesus, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the law. What does it say? Love God, love your neighbor. Go do it. <laughs> Who's my neighbor? <laughs> There's a man, he's robbed. Priest wouldn't help him. Yeah, like you, lawyer. Levi, he, he wouldn't help him. Yeah, like you. You know the more nasty Samaritans you don't like? One of them guys come down the road and look at the extent of compassion. Jesus brings it back home in verse 36. He's talking to the lawyer. What now of these three thinketh thou was the neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? Now notice this. The Lord has just changed the question. The question in verse 29 is this. Who is my neighbor? Now Jesus says in verse 36, it isn't about who your neighbor is. It's about are you a neighbor? That's it. You want to know who my neighbor is? You want somebody to define it for you. Right? We always want somebody to put the parameters in. Please give me an exhaustive description. No, the question is simply this. Are you a good neighbor? What qualifies, who qualifies to be loved? It's not about am I, it's about am I a neighbor who loves in this way? Deeply the point comes to heart. Forget trying to decide who qualifies for you to love them and demonstrate love with no qualifications in this sense. When there's real needs, you are to have compassion and show love. Man, very, I want you to notice this. Jesus said, who's your neighbor? Who, which one showed the right spirit? Who's, who's a good neighbor? He won't even say the word Samaritan. He said, the guy that showed mercy. <laughs> you know, that guy. The one in the parable I don't want to talk about. Oh, you mean Mr. Lawyer? Won't the priest? No. It, it won't your buddies, the Levites? Uh-uh. It was the guy that showed mercy. Jesus reiterates this again. Go. Go. And do likewise. 
Now what I want to show you here is something very unique because I believe it's at this point the knife goes in, the conviction is there. There's a blank space between the next verse because all of a sudden the next one says, now as they were traveling on, we don't know the man's response. That's on purpose. Because it comes down to this. Let's put ourselves in his shoes. What's your response? What's your response? What this man needed to do was say, Lord, I need to admit I have not been loving God like I should. I need to admit I have not been loving my neighbor as I should. This man needed to admit it. He needs to repent. He needs forgiveness. But the challenge is placed on the reader. Now hear me this morning. The story and the sermon is not to make people feel guilty about not giving enough money to poor people. It's not to make people feel guilty about not taking care of those who are suffering. Look, even though that may apply, the story is designed to make people feel guilty that for if you love God, you must love your neighbor and you must analyze yourself Christ tells this parable he puts it on us to know this you've got to love God and love your neighbor when those situations present themselves legitimate needs are going to come before you in life right I meet a lot of cases that are not legitimate sometimes I don't feel I don't figure out they're not legitimate until a month later but I research, I do evidence, I, I, I look for evidence, I work hard. And when I find a place that I say, I can I no longer help you, I draw the line. I'll share a quick little story with you. Uh, this happened to me last year. Um, we, we live in a community in Hampton, Virginia called Riverdale. And uh, it, it's not a gated community. It's, uh, <clears throat> some cut their grass and some don't. Across the street from us, kind of indirectly, was a house where a woman and her boyfriend lived. And they're one of those, you know, got a lot of good neighbors, but it was one of those neighbors that can really make you mad. The young man over there was in his 20s, I think he was 24. You know, he could do a lot of things, but he couldn't cut his grass. He could do a lot of things, but he couldn't do any yard work. And the neighbors would talk, and they'd come on, you know, you wish they'd cut the grass. Yeah, I wish they'd cut the grass. And, and every now and then, I'd, I'd get the hint of marijuana in the air, and I'd look out there, and he's sitting there, and he's smoking marijuana. And I'm like, yeah, come on, Hampton, come on. <laughs> I'm sitting there, and I'm asking myself many times, I said, that guy really frustrates me, right? I'll be honest with you, though. I was frustrated with him because things he was doing, lack of effort he put forth in life. But I wish I had a greater burden for his soul. I wish I went over there and talked to him a little bit. Because one night about 12.30, my wife wakes me up. And, and, and our room there, I see red lights flashing everywhere. And I look out the window and I see an ambulance and fire trucks and police cars just all in the street. Right there, I'm talking right in my house is right here. It'd be like over there in the parking lot somewhere where his house is. I hear a scream of a woman. And me and my wife go out on the porch. And we see the, 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 the girlfriends over there holding their eight-month-old baby, screaming. He shot himself! He shot himself! And the lady lives directly across from me, across from me a real nice elderly lady. 
That young girl goes over there and passes that baby to her. Can I tell you at that moment, I felt compassion. I said, God, this is a real need. What can I do? My wife goes in and tries to get some formula together, some different things for the baby. The baby's over there crying. She's crying out. Long story short, the cops just tell, stay, stay in your yard. Don't come out here. We got this. And when you see that body bag being rolled out in that stretcher right there across from you and the crime tape go up, I'm telling you, my heart just goes out. Well, the next day, as you can imagine, nobody's over there. And I told my wife, I said, I'd love to be able to talk to that girl and try to help her in some way. I don't know how. I don't know how, but I said, I feel compassion. You know what it is to feel compassion? It's more than just a tear. I mean, it's something inside of you that you just wish you could have a conversation. You wish you could help. And at times you know what it is to feel the limitations. But my heart is yearning to help. About two days later, a knock came to the door. And there she stood. We have security cameras on our house, as you would imagine. After telling you all this. I said, come on in, sit down. And my wife was there and I knelt down beside her chair. and She had tears in her eyes. I said, I, I, I said I'm a pastor. She said, I know. I don't know how she knew. But I'll tell you, my heart was overwhelmed that somehow somebody told her that I was a pastor. And I had a little bit of chance to minister to her and talk to her. And she was wanting to know if we had any footage. They, they thought somebody went over there and broke in the house. All, all this confusion. I'll be honest with you, her condition was rough. Her mental condition, her emotional condition. She didn't smell good. There's a lot of things that were going on there. But none of that mattered at that moment. I just saw the need. And I wish there was something I could do. Now, needless to say, what was so much I could do, I gave advice, an invitation to church, and even said, if you ever need something, you want to talk, you need counsel, I'm here. But it's that very willingness we need in our churches and in our hearts that we want to help others. One writer one time analyzed the thought of compassion and religion, and this is what he said. I'm going to read these to you, and I want you to look at your own heart. First of all, compassion is not academic. You don't learn to be compassionate by reading some secular book or even, even just going to church. Compassion is something that is cultivated when you know the condition of humanity and the answer for humanity. Compassion is built on that. Secondly, compassionate is not abstract. It's not just a thought. A lot of people have good thoughts but never do anything. Third, compassion cannot give in to fear and be afraid. You've got to be willing to reach down in the mud and the blood and to help. Number four, compassion is not analytical. Well, this writer says it's easy to become paralyzed with analyzing. He said, you look at this. When you look at this, there's something called in the world of business, the paralysis of analysis, which means you study and you study, but you never do and you never produce. The paralysis of analysis. He said, but what is compassion? Number one, compassion is about what you see. Did Christ not see, church? Did He not lift up His eyes? we got to make our minds up here, church. Hear me this morning. I know we can get our eyes on the signs of the time. But don't negate also getting your eyes on the signs of the harvest. Jesus 
He knew, he talked about future events. He looked to the cross, yes, but he never got to the place. He was so disconnected from the real needs that was around him and the world that was around him that he was not willing to look at the needs of one and do something to help them. Many times he was moved with, the, moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion several times. That deep sense of agony, of wanting to see somebody helped. Number two, compassion is about what you do. Sympathy is something you feel, one writer says, and compassion is something you do. Number three, compassion is about how you do it. Right? It matters how you do it. Compassion also is about what it's going to cost you. Sometimes compassion costs you time. Right? Has anybody ever had to shift up their schedule to help people? Look, I know we can't meet every need. I am, I look, I know that. I live in the middle of a city. Believe me, I know that I've been taken advantage of many times. I've had to learn. I've had to learn. But in my process of learning and rejection, I don't want to get to a place that I have no compassion. question is simply this. If you love God, you're going to love your neighbor. 